Please take your seats. It's gone 1.30, so it's time for us to start. Um, I'm Simon Blackburn. I, I'm an ex-professor of philosophy here, and I'm chairing this session. Um, there's one announcement. Um, in your program, it will look as though Caroline Edwards is the third speaker. Uh, she is unfortunately not well, um, but uh, Jennifer Wallace, whom I'll introduce, is substituting. So you still get your full money's worth of four speakers. Um, the format is the speakers will each go for eight minutes. I will introduce them as they talk, rather than give you a, a, a memory um, struggle, remembering who's who. Um, and after 32 minutes, that is at two minutes past two or thereabouts, that's four times eight, they've all got eight minutes, uh, we'll go on to questions. Um, so, without more ado, let me introduce uh, Priya Gopal, who is uh, a reader in Anglophone and related literatures at the Faculty of English in this university. Her research includes British and American literatures, the novel, translation, gender, feminism, Marxism, critical theory, and the politics and cultures of empire and globalization. Um, I don't know what that's going to leave for the other speakers to talk about, but... Um, uh, anyhow, over to, Pri over to Priya, and um, let's hear her. Thank you, Simon. So, my eight minutes starts. I'll, I'll get going. Over the last year, it has become apparent to most of us that we now live in a global political order in which alternative facts, Kellyanne Conway's admittedly trenchant term, has become the norm. The idea is that there are as many facts as there are people, and there's no difference, apparently and ultimately, between fact and opinion. Although, curiously enough, some facts are better than others. Apparently, the wholly made-up ones are better than the others. One thing to note here is that lies have always been part of liberal democratic uh, political spheres. But there is certainly something excessive and twisted about our moment. Riveted as we have been by events in the USA, we need not look only to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue for a stream of such alternative facts. Britain has managed to make a history-altering decision on the basis of some numbers scribbled on the back of a bus, along with toxic drafts of the kind of hatred of other people that curiously is usually the accompaniment to alternative facts. In the country of my birth, India, a man who is officially a member of a fascist group, the RSS, has been elected to the highest office, uh, elected office in the land, and he has held that ancient Hindus pioneered head transplants and space travel. And this is apparently the basis on which the adherents of Hinduism can consider themselves vastly superior to others. There are bigger and other more dangerous untruths in circulation, but that is for a separate discussion. So, is relativism responsible for this state of affairs? By relativism, as it is used in the question given to us to discuss today, I take it we mean the theory that there are no absolute truths and that all points of view are equally valid. Let's take that as a, a working definition anyway. So at one obvious level, we can say, yes, subscribing to the facile notion that all viewpoints are equally valid 
or that we can't ever determine the nature of truth is more or less indefensible and certainly a slippery slope out of which very little good can come. I should say, by the way, that I actually do not know very many actual card-carrying relativists. Even if first-year English students come to the classroom with the idea that everything is subjective and all readings are as valid as others, they don't usually hold it by the beginning of the following year. Let me say it outright then. Truth matters, reality matters, facts matter, evidence matters, knowledge matters. They have always mattered, but now under complete siege, they have never mattered more. And yet, and yet, I can't help thinking that there's a whiff of something else about the terms of this debate as it is currently posed, not just at the Festival of Ideas, but more generally. Something that suggests to me that the debate has become a subterfuge for something that isn't precisely about truth or reality per se. My concern is that in our time, relativism, much like political correctness, has become something of a catch-all term, a code word, a dog whistle even, for something else entirely. For relativism is the charge made against the claims to equality and restitution made by groups historically at the receiving end of subjugation. Relativism is a cognate word for that other contemptuous buzz phrase, identity politics, in denouncing which, astonishingly, sections of both the left and the right appear to concur. Identity politics, we are led to believe, leads to relativism and in, in, and in turn throws democracy, Western civilization, enlightenment values, social cohesion, national unity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, into crisis. And I should state here that there are parallels in, in other cultures where I come from. Uh, claims that identity politics are the problem are usually made by upper caste Hindu men against the politics of Dalit self-assertion or constitutional protections for religious minorities. Just as is claimed for liberal Western democracy, these, these upper caste men claim that Hinduism is the truly secular and correct and tolerant and inclusive path, whereas everybody else is just a special interest. For me, my own experience of racism uh, after I came to live in the West actually taught me a great deal about my own enormously advantaged position as an upper caste educated woman in India. Things that I had not seen when I lived there, I could now see by being at the receiving end of something else. So the claim is that identity politics has brought us to this pass where alternative facts prevail and good old liberal values are pushed aside. The racial or religious minority is sidelined and righteously angry because special minority groups are ruling the roost. The universal good and truth has been undermined, we are told, by the claims to special treatment made by any number of groups from women and gay people to blacks, Muslims, Jews, the disabled, and binary or trans people. Everything from truth and beauty to British values, the Enlightenment, the American way of life, the Indian nation, you can insert your own term in there, has gone to hell in a handbasket. Here is one little warning sign, though, against this facile but portable analysis. Very often, the actual relativists, by which I mean people who are apt to value some lives more than others, or are quick to trot out alternative facts or denounce criticism, are usually the very same people who also deny that they have an identity. They also deny that, uh, and they also claim that they are the defenders of the true way of life or the best set of values or the right way to be. 
How is it that a man who can mock disabled people on television, tell the widow of a dead black soldier that he knew what he was getting into, discuss women as sexual objects in the most degraded ways, and whose followers also openly admire Nazis, is also claiming to be the defender of Judeo-Christian values? As someone noted on Twitter, there's a lot more interest when this phrase is evoked in the Christian bit than the Judeo bit. My view is that we are in this situation because all along we have had a degraded idea of what universal values or truth before post-truth looks like. For too long, the truth has been commanded by people, usually males with privileged identities, where they can pretend that they don't have an identity, who are less interested in truth than using an abstract idea of truth for the exercise of power, self-puffery masquerading as truth. Because if you're actually interested in such things as truth or universal values, you would understand that one arrives at these things through historical experiences and through our lived selves, and not because truth is some kind of abstract notion out there in a mysterious, unmarked space. Here it is worth noting the words of the great scholar and in intellectual Edward Said that when, when you attack the abusers of something, it's not the same as dismissing or entirely destroying that thing. So we can criticize the use of truth without giving up on the idea of truth. Said teaches us that notions of the common good or truth, uh, I, have, I will finish in a minute. Um, or, or uh, sorry, society uh, tells us that notions of the common good of truth, of wisdom, decency, equality, and so on, are not unique to one set of cultures or people, that all cultures have bad practices of domination and subjugation, as well as the capacity to resist and dissent. Truth needs to be seen as a capacity, not an achievement, or an uncritically codified certainty that somehow pre-exists us. In finishing up, I'm going to uh, make a potentially contentious claim. I really am nearly done. Um, sometimes it is those at the receiving end of subjugation or inequality who have a better handle on reality, truth, and its workings. A greater clarity about how structures work against some people. And it's not usually those people who think they don't have an identity or an identity politics uh, who are in denial. So if our, jo our job, if truth is really what we are after, is not to repeat bland and pious canards about freedom and decency that simply entrench the status quo, but to actually uncover hidden stories, missing actualities, pushed out truths. Particularly important at a time when billionaires are claiming that they are anti-establishment and striking a blow against elitism. What is most interesting about all cultures, as Said reminds us, is not their essence or their purity, but the way in which they have of conducting a compelling dialogue with other civilizations and cultures. It is up to us to keep this dialogue alive if truth is really what we value. Thank you.
Thanks, Simon. Well, in the current flurry of interest in so-called post-truth politics, we tend to forget how important spin was uh, to some area of the press uh, under the early happy days of the Tony Blair government, when education was being revitalised from the bottom up and there was civic hope in contrast to austerity. Spin was a word that the press used to imagine that somehow the government wasn't representing the world fairly, which is ironic enough, granted how the press has repeatedly behaved and continues to behave. Spin was, of course, a press spin. It all seems rather sweet now. Um, but from a historical point of view, and from the point of view of democratic theory, spin is not a negative aspect of the political process but integral to it. That is to say that democracy from the beginning, by which I mean ancient Athens, where I do most of my work, insists on putting things, as meson, as we say in Greek, into the public domain to be contested. There's nothing inherently democratic in merely making things publicly available. There must be an assembly, an ecclesia, where a point of view can be debated and challenged, and where it's the civic duty of every citizen to make a decision on the basis of the arguments presented on both sides of a question. Which is one reason why the internet is not democratic or democratizing, as it's often claimed, but is more like a fragmenting of a polity into smaller self-selecting and consenting units. One consequences of this is that democracy depends on both sides of a case being made with all the power of rhetoric and the citizens being adept as possible in evaluating such persuasiveness. If mere transparency and straight presentation were enough to reveal the truth, there'd be no need for debate. Persuasion, which is the grown-up word for spin, is an integral part of how democracy has to work. Transparency is always a rhetorical pose. The court works, both, works well when both sides give the best possible case for their client. So in this immediate sense, the issue of post-truth or relativism cannot be resolved by appealing to transparency or the naked revelation of what is the case, unless you wish to be very naive indeed about the necessary conflicts within any, within any complex community about complex issues, where vested interests are part of the case, not something simply to be denied. Democracy needs difference of opinion, even bitter differences. And in turn, democratic debate requires persuasion, rhetoric, spin, and good judgment. Now, there's an equally strong requirement of relativism if we wish to engage with countries or communities other than our own. Again, we, know the, we owe the origins of this nexus of ideas to ancient Greece and to Herodotus in particular and the sophists of the 5th century BCE. Herodotus told the story of how the Greeks defeated the Persian invaders. He saw it as a battle of East versus West, and his version of events has proved so dominant that John Stuart Mill, no mug, declared the Battle of Marathon a more important event in British history than the Battle of Hastings. Now, this battle was for him, as for many others, how all our values came to survive and become prevalent. But Herodotus, in exploring the contrast between cultures, gave a long and sophisticated account of how the different communities of the Mediterranean differed, 
Of course, he was brilliant in arguing that what defeated the Persians was not military cunning or bravery, but actually the political and social values of Greek culture, our culture, led by Athenian democracy and Spartan commitment to the law. But he was equally clear that Greek ideas about their innate superiority in every area were nonsense. Egypt was older, had bigger monuments, and even Scythian nomads had things going for them. For Plutarch, writing in the Roman Empire, it was easy to deride Herodotus for loving barbarians. So open-minded did he appear about cultural difference. So he who only knows England knows not England. You can't learn properly about the self without exploring the other. Now, sometimes exploring the other looks like imperialism, imposing your values on the other violently or insidiously. Sometimes exploring the other looks like self-aggrandisement, when the other is looked at only to show how good you are and how good you feel about yourself. Sometimes looking at the other just produces bafflement. But without risking those negative strategies and self-consciously trying to avoid them, the positive benefits of understanding how you fit into the world, into a world of differences, is simply not possible. Without relativism, you have only the crass self-assertion of your inevitable rightness. And I can't imagine any informed or intelligent position about a standing in the world that did not seriously reflect on relativism's necessity and difficulty. What I have found difficult in recent years is the appropriation of relativism and the denial of democratic exchange all in the name of freedom of speech, another necessary democratic value, much abused. When politicians or merely commentators or citizens say, well, that's my view and we're all entitled to our view and I'm not interested in your counter view, or, or worse, we're not in a world of democratic exchange, but in a dangerous internet chat room where all views have equal validity, and, but only those that agree with you actually matter. Because truth is difficult and different views on complex matters inevitable, that doesn't justify lies, which are not as complex as truth. It simply doesn't follow that the, because the truth is varied or complex that lies are a good response to that. Because there are multiple views, that doesn't invalidate expertise or allow you to denigrate good arguments over bad arguments or bad evidence over good. What is hard to do, but I think it's absolutely necessary, is to resist such manipulative, self-serving and destructive appeals to self-interest concealed as relativism, without falling back on naive assertions of one's own certainty. People often talk about a crisis of faith, as if that was somehow our problem. I think we actually have a crisis of doubt. That is... We've forgotten how to navigate a world of doubt without screaming about our own possession of truth. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. That was wonderful to hear. Um, now, uh, Jennifer, you're... Up and running? Yes. Um, good. Uh, Jennifer had her, uh, an event just before this, so she had to arrive late. Uh, Jennifer is a fellow and senior lecturer in English at Peterhouse. Her research ranges across the disciplines of English literature, classics, 
archaeology, theology, and visual culture, uh, with a special focus on tragedy, drama, classical reception, and contemporary ethical issues. Her published books, I see, include Digging the Dirt, uh, the Archaeological Imagination, um, and there's another one going to be Digging Up, oh, d just out, Digging Up Milton. Um, I don't know whether that's for archaeologists as well. Um, anyhow, it's, <laughs> oh, right, it's a novel, oh, good. Um, well, uh, so that's um, uh, Jennifer Wallace, and uh, the floor is yours. Hello, well, <coughs> I'm not uh, Catherine Edwards, uh, as was um, advertised, uh, so just, and um <coughs> I've just come from uh, an event talking about Paradise Lost, which is why I was late, um, in which, of course, uh, Satan <coughs> announces that the mind is its own place which can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. Satan, it seems to me, is the ultimate relativist. And um, probably what we're going to discuss in the Q&A is what, quite what relativism means. Um, I had to um, uh, uh, look it up uh, when I was asked to stand in at the last minute uh, earlier this week. Um, and I decided that I was definitely not a relativist. But um, it is actually a very difficult um, uh, question. And what it, what, when I um, started thinking about this, it seemed to me that fundamentally I'm not a relativist if we think of relativism and truth as radically opposed, precisely because truth, it seems to me, is fundamentally, for me, connected to the question of justice. Without truth, you can't have justice. And when our injustice happens, it's often at the expense of truth. And I came to this um, uh, conclusion because... When I was asked, uh, as I said, to stand in at the last minute, the first thing I thought about when I thought about, well, uh, why does truth matter to me, was um, the moment at the end of Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, um, a play in which truth um, becomes more and more murky, where the power of the mob to spin untruths becomes so febrile that terrible injustices are done. And at the end of that play, if you all know it, Proctor, the hero of the, um, of the play, um, refuses, having already denied the truth that he um, uh, was uh, cavorted with the devil or whatever, um, uh, having denied that truth, he finally refuses to sign his name to a public document um, explaining or confessing the untruth of his action. And he says he's not going to do this because it is his name. It's the only thing he can hang on to. And that name becomes a kind of symbol for him of truth and of a kind of justice that he needs to hand on to, hang on to. And so it seems to me that um, what we're witnessing now in the chipping away of truth is in many ways also a growing sense of various forms of injustice. Now, this is um, a terribly um, complicated um, question because, um, as Priya has probably said, but I missed her talk, so um, uh, truth is terribly difficult to arrive at. And one might think of truth as, in some ways, a kind of um, patriarchal, hegemonic um, uh, 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 notion which is falsely portrayed as objective. 
And so I was thinking, well, how do we actually arrive at truth? And it seems to me that truth is traditionally uh, um, arrived at agonistically or dialectically. We think of truth in the law courts arrived at through the um, airing of competing narratives of what might have happened for a judge and a jury finally to discern through it that some objective idea of what actually happened, and that is supposedly the justice. Um, or, um, as I'm sure people are thinking about in this question about post-truth, um, the uh, activity of peer reviewing in science comes up with the, uh, the idea that ultimately truth has arrived through a form of consensus, the IPCC for climate change, bringing together a huge range of different scientific opinions in order to supposedly come up with truth. Now, this, this agonistic um, uh, dialectic uh, uh, determining of truth is done um, dialectically, but within the, within the framework of certain moral principles that have been accorded universal assent over time. And uh, Simon has just mentioned the question of good judgment. It seems to me that that good judgment has to lie at the heart of this opening up of various forms of, of uh, apprehensions of truth to which um, people collectively will come up with um, a, a, a judgment. Um, and through that, truth, it seems to me, is arrived at. Yes, it's difficult. Um, and uh, one might think in the 18th century, uh, a, an exploration of um, the difficulty of arriving at a kind of false certainty of truth is one of the things that really motivates the early wits like Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift, whose truth is to be uh, apprehended through, um, as uh, Swift says in Gulliver's Travels, um, thinking about the thing that was not. So what you do is you tell the um, false certainty in the hope that the reader can discern the real truth lying behind it. That is a kind of um, ironic truth that emerges at that time, and it's partly because of this difficulty of supposedly arrogantly pinpointing the fact that you have the, uh, the um, easy purchase upon truth. So yes, it's difficult, but I think one has to hang on to it as an important pr principle that that kind of... Uh, consensual but nevertheless um, fundamentally um, uh, solid sense of truth is there. And I think you have to hang on to it now because it's being chipped away at. And it seems to me that our post-truth world is a world of lying and deliberate deception on the part of the right, which is sometimes under the mask of relativism, but it isn't because of relativism, it seems to me. Um, and it's um, and it's the deliberate deception on the part of the right, which um, people who have been ground down by fear-mongering and economic and political neglect fall easily prey to. And those lies about climate change or immigrants or gender and sexuality or how many people attended an inauguration are just wrong and they're deeply destructive and they must be oppressed seems to me that um, relativism is not to blame, but relativism is exploited or manipulated or retrospectively taken as justification for the fog of lies which totalitarian strongmen and popular demagogues create 
to allow themselves to win and maintain power. And so our challenge now is to make sure that certain universal principles and values that have been hard won over the years are not set back or overturned in the current climate. Um, I'm not a relativist, as, um, I, said to, uh, as I said before, and, and one of my objections, I think, is this idea that somehow you can only write or speak about something from that subject position now. Um, so I was going to, uh, just to, by way of example, I'm actually um, writing a book now called Witnessing Tragedies Since 9-11, um, How Literature Interprets a World Out of Joint. And I talked about um, this book to a potential publisher. And, um, and he said that he would only be interested in my book called Witnessing Tragedy Since 9-11 if I had actually been at Ground Zero in New York on September the 11th, 2001. Um, because only if I had been there would I be allowed to speak about, about that event. Now, that seemed to me a really importantly wrong position to take. <coughs> because what does it say about the role of the concerned citizen today. Can't we be interested, sympathetic, speak for events to which we aren't directly a victim? We aren't directly experienced, we haven't directly experienced, but we are witnessed, witnesses of and concerned about. What about the function of compassion? It seems to me that we now need to reclaim the importance of an ethics of concern, of the, of the importance of bearing witness of watchful and fearful common ground. And that seems to me not self-deceptive certainty. That seems to me not elitism. That seems to me, having come from a long um, career of um, uh, thinking about tragedy, that seems to be about pity and fear. It's, you might say, it's ethical and political attentiveness. It's citizenship. And I believe that literary criticism and the humanities does and should prepare us for it. Okay, the final speaker. The final speaker is uh, Frank Faridi, who's a very well-known sociologist and social commentator. He was formerly professor of sociology at the University of Kent in Canterbury. He's the author of 17 full-length length books. Uh, I shan't read out all the titles, um, uh, um, but of, of course he's also a commentator on issues to do with education and cultural life in general. So, Professor Farudi. Yeah, thank you very much. <coughs> I have become a little bit suspicious of the impulse and the desire on the part of people to discuss truth and post-truth society. And I think the reason for that is because whenever I talk to audiences, on this subject is a kind of comfortable sense of ha, 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 look what Trump has said. And isn't it really horrible about all the lies that the religious right are making in the United States? And I think if, for this audience, and as for any educated audience, it's very easy to make fun and to criticize and to expose the latest lies of these idiots. Uh, you don't need to have a PhD in critical theory to see that there are problems here. But what, what this kind of self kind of complacent attitude projects is a complete unawareness that the question of truth has been at issue for a very, very long time. That political lies did not 
emerge out of nowhere in the recent years. But if you go back all the way through time, lies and more lies have always been a staple diet of politicians throughout the world. And I think it's just important that we take a reality check. I know myself, I feel very strongly about this because I've always felt that what was really important was not the truth, but the quest for the truth. The quest to find out what is really right and what is really wrong. And I remember when I wrote about this in a book called uh, Where Have All the Intellectuals Gone? In the early 20th century, 21st century, not that old. Um, <laughs> and uh, one, of my, one of the book reviews wrote, ho, 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 ho. Professor Ferredi is so old-fashioned that he still believes in the truth. And I could really see that kind of arrogant, complacent way in which that was said, because the assumption that you would still believe in the truth in an educated, civilized Cambridge or Oxford environment was, was really weird. I mean, you really have to be somehow on the margins of the world. So I think we should take a reality check about how these issues have been dealt with in more recent times. I thought it would be useful for me to come here and give you some kind of historical context about relativism. So I think there's a lot of confusion about it. I think the first important point to understand about relativism is that no political uh, sort of section of society has got a monopoly over it. Uh, relativism is monopolized by sections of the right as much as it is monopolized by sections of the left, and that's always been the case. In fact, historically, there have been three phases of relativism. The first phase of relativism was in the early 19th century, like all forms of relativism, as a, a, a kind of a reaction against the Enlightenment, particularly a hatred for universalistic values. I think the hatred for universalistic values is a recurrent theme in the whole history uh, of, of the last 200 years. People find it very difficult to genuinely wholeheartedly believe in a universalist outlook. And even people that claim to do so very often do it in a very selective way. Very often what they do is they project their own particular standpoint as the universal point and are completely oblivious to the fact that universalism can take many shapes and many, many forms. But in the early 19th century, particularly in Germany, but to lesser extent and in France, relativism wasn't really uh, about questioning the truth. And it wasn't totally relativistic. What it was basically saying was we don't believe in universal values, we believe in German values, or we believe in Bavarian values, or we believe in French values. And of those, they weren't skeptical. They were very traditional about it. They believed, that they believed in faith, and they believed in the truth of being Bavarian or being German. They believed, as Roland said, in the soul of France as being an authentic truth, and that's really how relativism emerges as a kind of mystical, romantic, slightly conservative reaction against the Enlightenment. With the passing of time, by the time we get to the 60s, relativism ad adopts a very different form. At this point in time, relativism becomes much also directed against universalism, but it's also, for the first time, increasingly skeptical of tradition, of any traditional values, and becomes increasingly skeptical of faith in any of its form. And gradually you have the, you know, what George Lukács, the Marxist uh, philosopher said, this kind of imploding from a relativism that kind of believes in, no in nothing, or at least claims to believe in nothing. Although obviously, anybody, whether you're a relativist or not, will in fact have some fairly strong uh, kind of belief. 
But I think what was very important about relativism in the 60s is that it was underpinned by three very important social and cultural trends that, that fed it, that fueled it, and gave it strength. I think, first of all, what we saw in the West in particular was the fragmentation of moral consensus, where you had the unraveling of national identities occurring throughout Europe and in other parts of the world, where all of a sudden, nobody could answer the question, what does it mean to be French? Or what does it mean to be British? So that was taking place anyway, that whole unraveling of, of national identity. Secondly, you had the erosion of what's called traditional values. When the Conservative Party in this country could talk about going back to basics, but the more he talked about it, the more it became very clear that what the basics were was far from evident, and that the traditional family, traditional gender roles, traditional relations had somehow come unstuck. And again, that occurred with our relativism. That really was a cultural and important social trend. And thirdly, what you had, uh, as a result of the decline of class consciousness, as a result uh, of a sense of decline of universal consciousness, you had a shift from consciousness to identity. And I think that the development of what's called identity politics first kicks in at this particular stage in time. It's a, a retreat to identity, where all of a sudden, with identity, what becomes important is the biological accident that you were born into. What becomes important is your, your religion or your ethnic background rather than your accomplishments, rather than what you've achieved, rather than what you've created. And that becomes crucially important. And in fact, because of the politicization of identity, at that stage in time, relativism doesn't just simply question values, it also argues for, for conflicting relativist epistemologies. In other words, it says there's a woman's way of knowing, there's an African way of knowing, there is a Chinese way of knowing, and increasingly even knowledge and the uh, tackling of knowledge becomes segregated and segmented in a very kind of wholehearted way. That's the second phase of relativism. The third phase, which we're now living, is one where, in a sense, you know, sort of truth on the one hand has become increasingly emptied of meaning, but relativism now is really not about culture, although that's the form that it takes. It's really about feelings and emotions. So what matters is how I feel. What matters is who I am. If, for example, if you talk to somebody who has a particular identity, you can't argue with them on the grounds that the argument you put forward isn't just simply an argument against their argument, you're annihilating their very existence. In other words, if you question somebody on a campus and say you're wrong, it's not a debate about ideas, you're attacking their persona. And once you move into the realm of emotions, this therapeutic, narcissistic turn of identity politics, which is a very recent phenomenon, and is paralleled by the therapeutic turn of the whole of society, then you have a very crucial and important development. And what this form of identity politics does, and what's so remarkably corrosive about it, is that it actually calls into question what I think is the most important value for truth seekers, which is judgment. If you, I'll only be a few seconds, if you look at any campus, low university web pages, they will have as one of their core values, non-judgmentalism. They think that non, not judging one another is a really cool thing. Somehow, oh, I'm really not, I'm not judgy like those people are. Actually, as Hannah Arendt told us, judgment is the only way that we can take each other seriously. It's only through an act of judgment that we, as people in the public sphere, can get to know each other 
and discover our common humanity. It's only through judgment that clarity and truth can be gained. And it seems to me that the biggest casualty of the current phase of what, what's called relativism or identity politics and its popularization is that the value of judgment itself has become pathologized. And as long as that's the case, truth will always be in danger and will always be monopolized, not just by the Trumps, but their equivalent on the left and in other sectors of society. Thank you. very much indeed. Um, before throwing it open to the floor, I'll just um, tell a very quick story about relativism. Um, this uh, um, uh, happened to a friend of mine who was at a think tank at Princeton University, and um, they'd arranged a debate in front of a lot of students uh, between proponents of the world's great religions. And so, uh, first of all, all as, uh, we'll say the Hindu started, and he talked about the uh, different uh, avatars of um, uh, the gods in Hindu religion and talked about the caste system and so on. And at the end of his speech, all the students said, wow, terrific. If that works for you, that's great. And then the Buddhist had a go and he talked about nirvana and the eightfold path and the way to achieve uh, happiness and conquer desire. And when he sat down, the students all said, wow, terrific. If that works for you, that's great. And then finally, after a number of others, the Catholic priest got up and he talked about the, uh, the fall of mankind and its redemption through Jesus Christ and um, uh, the duty to love your neighbor and so on. And he sat down and the students all said, wow, terrific, if that works for you, that's great. And he thumped the table and said, no, it's not a question of whether it works for me. This is the true word of the living God and if you don't believe it, you are all damned to hell. <laughs> and they all said, wow, terrific. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's my story about relativism. <laughs> um, okay, questions from the floor. Um, yes, gentlemen over there. I think there's a roaming microphone comes around, so perhaps you could... Right, yeah, this one. Thank you. Um, yes, I was. I just want to start off with um, perception um, is inevitably relational. I mean, I'm here and you are there. It's a relation. Yet perception will form a representation of what it perceives um, at a higher abstracted level. And I was thinking truth might best be thought of as the relevancy of this, either in a prediction or in an, in in an interpretation. Um, people seek coherence with integration in their representative structures, in their thinking and beliefs. Um, and in the age of the internet, the, the facts, the presented facts, I should say, are viewed as equal because the extension um, is, not, uh, is not perceptible. Um, uh, in furthermore... Could, could, could a question be a question? Yes, Thank certainly. Um, in a, furthermore, in a commoditized economy, people, is people are used to using their desire to choose the presented entities and decide in this way. Um, and the retreat to identity may be uh, this desire for a low abstracting certainty with its associating emotions. So my question is, uh, is not this solution to increase the diversity of the recognition and the perception? 
and the interpretation, enabling coherence of integration to form at a much higher qualitative level that will incorporate diversity of viewpoint and in which the extension of that the presented facts are, are recognised. Um, Please discuss. <laughs> <laughs> would any of our speakers like to take that one on? Yeah. Frank? Uh, I, I don't think I agree, I agree with you. I, I think that the way that I conceptualise it is that it's wrong to counterpose relativism to, abs to, ab to absolutes because I think the way that the, the world works, reality works, is that there are relative, relative truths that are absolute truths as well at that particular context. And I think if you think contextually, then the relationship between uh, relative and absolute is mediated by the quest for the truth at that particular time. I think if we have that idea that we can, we can overcome the problem of relativism because it's not a problem, I think if you... Is it on? No, I'll speak up. It is, you can hear me. I think if you start from the position that there are multiple perspectives and that society is dialogic, dynamic, and involves different people speaking to each other, you inevitably produce different perspectives and different claims on truth. What might be interesting to think about is the values you need to work in a community of that sort. And that's where judgment, which is the word that came up in two or three of these papers, is terribly important. The idea that you might listen to people with respect, the idea that you might actually try and treat people as you would wish to be treated in a, in a discussion, and that, that somehow you would judge in order to be judged is a, is a very important value. So for me, relativism isn't a challenge to truth, it's the very condition of truth if relativism is understood as the multiple perspectives of a complex community. Well, the, the difficulty, of course, I mean, this is, this is, so, uh, you're on there, you're on there. Am I on? Okay. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it works if, um, uh, to go back to the Pope and Swift that I was talking about, it works if everyone, um, uh, traditionally it worked, you know, in the 18th century with everyone being men in a coffee house, all sharing the same common mm. language, and through that knowing um, the kind of code in which to recognise one another. Um, what's happened in the 20th century is that the people allowed into that coffee house has extended, if you like, so that one has women. <laughs> um, you might have um, people from uh, other nations, other races, the uh, um, various uh, what might be called minority, although of course they're majority uh, groups coming in. And it, but it still would only work as a conversation if everyone shares the same kind of common codes of judgment, truth, uh, you know, veracity, um, trust, um, and, the, and a kind of um, capacity to listen. And what we're facing now is, the, uh, what the difficulty is, is imagining how we engage with people in this metaphorical coffee house, if you like, with people who are intolerant. It only works if there's a general ethos of tolerance in which truth might emerge and become discernible. What happens when you want to let in or not let in people into this coffee house who are intolerant, who are mendacious, who are non-rational but just emotional um, in, uh, or um, bound up by fundamentalist beliefs so that they refuse to listen to anyone else, dog dogmatically uh, um, uh, driven. So I think that is the kind of issue behind this difficulty of working out how yeah. truth can be reached through a common consensus. But I don't yeah. think we should then lose 
faith in the metaphorical coffee house, as it were. Okay, another question. Uh, lady here. Hi. Um, yeah, I'd particularly like to address Sister Priya because she was talking about um, how identity politics has some good roots in oppressed people's experience and, can, and attacks on it can be used to reinforce um, it, it, people who want to keep, maintain their own power. But do you not think it can also be used in the opposite way? I mean, some feminists such as Afar Nafisi and uh, Ayan Hersi Ali have been attacked by relativists on the grounds that how could they possibly comment on their own cultures when these cultures are somehow beyond... I mean, that's, it's so extreme as to be ridiculous, but these things do occur. Sometimes feminists are attacked, and, these, and sometimes by white people, by white men, on the grounds that they shouldn't be critiquing their own cultures. And this is clearly related to the idea of relativism, so it, it can absolutely go the other way as well. Um, I've written on uh, Nafisi. Um, I haven't engaged very much with Ayan uh, Hirsi Ali, but I have seen the critiques, uh, and I haven't seen <coughs> critiques which have said she shouldn't be speaking about her own culture. The critiques have actually, by and large, looked at the ways in which she is positioned within the power structures of the Western public sphere to be able to make a particular kind of point about Western superiority versus Muslim backwardness. Nafisi also, um, and, I, and you can look up what I've written, um, is a very interesting person, but her writings set up a, a curious binary between uh, an open, free thinking, self-critical West and a deeply authoritarian, homogeneous Iran. Iran has a, a magnificent culture before, before the authoritarians have their way of debate and discussion and literature and dissent. And that gets completely wiped out in this kind of, I have come to America and at last I am now free from a repressive, backward Muslim country. And I think the issue isn't that one can't have a critique, I just critiqued my own country and the patriarchs who run my own country. Um, but I think one always has to be cognizant of the context in which an intervention is made, but more than the, the context in which the intervention is made, the way in which that is being used to underscore a sense of the West as the apogee of freedom, dissent, and liberal thought. And that's just completely nonsense. There is identity politics everywhere. I mean, just because people claim that other people have an identity politics doesn't mean that the person who's making that claim doesn't have an identity politics. They very much do. The question is whose identity politics rule the roost and who is trying to assert themselves within a framework where some people rule the roost. I, I also don't go along with the coffee house. I mean, I, I understand that you know one must think about a coffee house, but for a lot of people, their identity and their way of being in the world is a life or death issue. You know, it's not just about sitting here and, and stroking our chins and saying, oh, you know, different views, different, different engagements. For a lot of people, identity is a question of murder. So I'm, I, I, I find in this room, for instance, this kind of some of the consensus very much belongs to the identity politics of Cambridge, which is about as identitarian as a place can get. Thank you very much. Um, question of gentleman at the back. Several of the speakers made a point that truth is more of a 
process than a state. Uh, it was mentioned that it was a, the quest for truth is more important than the truth itself, that it's capacity rather than an object. Is this not a pessimistic diagnosis? Does this not suggest that rather than asking more attention from the public, we're actually asking for the public to put more effort in and actually engaging in a process rather than just attending to the state of the world? No, I think it's a very optimistic one because uh, we live in a world now where um, education is no longer very rarely seen as something that's important in its own right. We see uh, in universities a situation where uh, degree courses are valued in relation to the employability uh, sort of consequences that they have. You know, I have, a, I have a lot of friends in the humanities who often try to justify the fact that they teach classics by the lovely jobs you're gonna get in the city or in the media because you, s you speak ancient Greek and Latin and that helps your, kind of, you know, your ability to wheel and deal later on. So I do think that we've given up, we've seriously given up on understanding that the quest for the truth is one of the most uh, exciting and, and one of the most uh, valuable way in which we can get a glimmer of our humanity and in the way in which we uh, sort of clarify the problems that begin to confront us. And I think that journey and, and, and actually valuing that journey is to me a, a hallmark of a, of a civilized society. And it's something that I find exists in, in most European societies despite their claims to be world leaders in uh, university. It's, it's conspicuously on the margins of society. It's not something that the mainstream genuinely signs up to. So I do think it's an optimistic view, which is why I think harnessing the idealism of our young people to do truth-seeking is probably the best thing that educate, educators can do in the 21st century. Thank you very much. Um, anybody else on that question? Um, um, well, I, 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 yes, I think it's an optimistic view, but I think it's a view that we should all campaign to promote. So I'm, I'm very much along the lines of uh, that Frank said, that, that the, the uh, capacity to read widely informed judgments in order to reach truth and, um, and therefore engage as active citizens, um, as it were, um, is, a, is a vital aspect of um, living today and, and education should try and promote that idea. So um, absolutely, I think truth is something as a process rather than some kind of um, recipe. Apropos of Frank's remarks about um, the defense of the humanities and with due apologies to Simon, who's the classicist, mm. I think there is a famous story about a dean of Christchurch, Oxford, um, in the last century, who was asked what the value was of educating people in the classics. And he said, there are three answers. It elevates above the common herd. Um, it enables us to read the words of our savior in the original Greek. And finally, it often leads to positions of considerable emolument, <laughs> both in this life and in that which is to come. <laughs> uh, okay, time for another question. Now, oh, lots of hands. A lady here. Then Thank you. Um, at the risk of appearing to align myself with Satan, I'd like to suggest that there might be perhaps different kinds of truth. For example, earlier today I was at a session 
with my friend here, uh, called Denial, in which it was proved in a court of law that the Holocaust did happen, and that it was therefore a true event or series of events. When I was a child, we learned this king was a good king. That king was a bad king, which was satirized in 1066 and all that. If you take a king like Henry VIII, we know he killed two of his wives. He also <coughs> broke with the Church of Rome. He was a great um, proponent and the encourager of culture and so on. Uh, and he believed in women's education. His daughter was very well educated. Was he a good king or a bad king? Maybe there are different views on that, which are both or all legitimate. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think it's, uh, you're absolutely right. With a, a scattershot a remark as such, so-and-so was a good king. Um, you're going to find respects in which he was a good king and respects in which he wasn't from almost everybody. Um, yes, I'm not sure that's quite what people want to mean by relativism. It doesn't sound like an ism. It just sounds like a common sense remark that people can be good in some respects and bad in others. I think Boris Becker was a great tennis player, but he's not very good at managing his finances. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 or indeed other parts of his life. <laughs> other parts of his life. <laughs> yes. mm. um, anyhow, does anybody else want to add? I think if we're going to talk about truth rather than relativism, and I'd rather stick to the relativism because I think that's the important part of the, the discussion, but it's worth saying that there are things that are true and trivially true. And everybody cares about things that are true and trivially true. If I turn to the front row and say, you're clearly and then run a series of horrible adjectives past you, you'll be upset because it's not true in your mind. Right? And, and that's, everybody does it every day. You can't live without a basic trivial sense of truth. Right? But it seems to me that's also, by virtue of its triviality, not very interesting. And it's not what we mean when we talk about do we have an optimistic or... Blah. The question is how complex of you, first of all, do we want of the world? The German satirist Krauss said, if you could understand everything you read in a paper one day, you would go mad. <laughs> the world is a very complex, very vested interest. But I think the sense of truth that we're looking for, and we're discussing when it comes into purchase with relativism, is about how do you evaluate and deal with a complex situation with vested interests and multiple perspectives. And that's when it, it, it becomes difficult. So you have to say, what is the opposite? What is the opposite of this truth we're looking for? I don't think anybody in the room is going to commit to lying. As an alternative. So what's the opposite of the truth? Well, it might be a half-truth. It might be a judgment. It might be this. And that's where we have to start to go when we get to relativism and truth, to avoid the, the trivial issue and move towards what happens when we have multiple vested interests and we're pre trying to pro progress towards either conflict or consensus or both. Yes, I think that the gentleman uh, in the, um, the the foremost of the two gentlemen with their hands up up there. Yeah. It's not often I'm called foremost, but anyway. <laughs> um, very small point then. The question post truth. Quite often, it's you know people have discussed it, mentioned it here. It's Trump. It's the right who say these things. But I can't help thinking a lot of the time it's often a veiled attack on the capability of the public to make judgments. 
um, on these truths. And quite often, people don't want to explicitly say the public is stupid or whatever, although intolerance is quite often used. So my fundamental simple question is, does the panel think the, the, um, the public, the demos, the people, citizens, are actually capable of making judgments without the use of experts, whether it's from universities or wherever else? Can people fundamentally make judgments by themselves? Hmm. Well, that's a very nice one. Can people make judgments by themselves, or do they need the guidance of Cambridge? <laughs> or e even Oxford? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think this has been a question that's been raised in ancient Greece, and it was <coughs> Socrates who famously said, you know, how can you let the people take charge of political life when we have experts for building ships and building, uh, you know, architects for building buildings? Why allow everybody to claim the role of being political experts? And that argument, I think, has, you know, is, 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 is very powerful today. Uh, I'm the only person in this room, uh, I think, that likes populism. I, I, you know, populism as a, as a a respectable you know, sort of legacy of being for the people, for the demos. And I think very often the denunciations of populism are actually a denunciation of the capability of the masses to think for themselves. And they often uh, express a very strong elitist disdain for the rationality of the uneducated or Hillary Clinton's deplorables to make sense of the world. And the very fact that she uses words like deplorables indicates that she isn't just simply uh, thinking of them as being misguided citizens, she thinks of them as being unbalanced, rather malevolent individuals who need to be crushed. So I d this is why I think that there is a, a huge problem that we confront, which is that uh, one of the, 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 the corollaries of, of our increasing cynicism about the search for the truth is we do not really believe that ordinary people, ordinary folk, uh, are able to play the kind of roles that we expect of, uh, of, of serious citizens, and I think that that's a very palpable political force throughout Europe, which is why uh, a lot of right-wing parties and a lot of parties of, of, that, uh, of that persuasion are, are gaining a lot, of, uh, a lot of strength because unlike other people, they at least in their own way are making an attempt to speak for the people for what, uh, despite the agenda that they're kind of promoting. So it is dangerous and I think people in universities have got to get a life and got to get outside and learn to talk to the language of everyday life with, with the people that are around us, to inf influence them and to inspire them. I'd put that slightly differently. I would, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I'd say is that, I mean, I think the post-truth comes about for a slightly different reason. And I think the reason why people want to say post-truth is there don't seem to be the same consequences for arrant lying. That's what post-truth to me means, is that if you stand up and say something that is an arrant lie and there are no consequences in the political world, that's different from the long history of political manipulation. And that's what people are trying to get their heads around. How could you just stand up and say black is white and then nobody seems to care? Well, of course people care, but it hasn't had any consequences. That's what I think post-truth means. Now, as for the Socratic position, one shouldn't forget where Plato's arguments led. And they lead to totalitarianism. And there Plato was the, you know, the strongest support for both Hitler and Stalin loved Plato for his arguments. So I have no doubt that Plato's arguments about expertise lead into a very, very damaging political place. It's not merely mistrust of the people, it actually leads to a political disaster. But what follows from that, one of the consequences is, in a complex world, you also need two things. You don't just have judgment, you have to have debate. And secondly, you have to have some form of informed debate. You have to have some way of mediating expertise to people. You can't just say, 
anybody can make a decision about. You know, nobody wants to have a crowdsourced medical solution to your problem. <laughs> okay? So we have to have a way of mediating expertise that is actually works. And that, for me, is about the control or the openness of public discourse. And for me, one of the, you know, the horrors of living in Western societies is just the sheer poverty of public discourse that inevitably leads to the inability of anybody, not just the people, so-called, but experts, people like you know, university people. I find it as hard to make an informed decision about climate change as anybody else because of the poverty of, of the public discourse on that. And I think that's, our, uh, that's where I would focus the attention. I, I think that... Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, if, uh, if we're saying that uh, Plato's um, <laughs> uh, reliance on expert expertise led to uh, totalitarianism, one can see a whole number of different populist uh, uh, regimes around the world at the moment, which are all but totalitarian in nature, whether it's Orban in Hungary, it's Modi in India, it's um, potentially, you know, um, uh, Trump in, uh, in America. It's going that way. Um, it seems to me that um, uh, that, that the um, uh, denigration of experts that we saw both in the Brexit debate and in the Trump election was actually cynical manipulation by, particularly in the Trump uh, instance, um, by uh, corporate interests in order to create a fog of um, relativism to which people um, uh, who you know, were not able to see their way through this um, whole um, mirage of various kind of narratives um, uh, uh, fell prey. So um, for, for particularly the climate change um, debate, it is absolutely um, been established by the IPCC that climate change is happening mm -hmm. and it's anthropogenic. And yet continuing is this wrong idea that somehow scientists are undecided on this, that nobody knows, that we can't trust the experts because they all um, are in disagreement with one another. And that is just not the case. That is factually, factually proved and peer-reviewed by the IPCC uh, year after year. And it seems to me that it's the oil lobbies uh, behind the Trump regime, which will say to everyone, no, don't trust these experts, don't trust these scientists, you know, just um, it's up to you to use your judgment because they want to continue oil extraction. That's just one example. So I don't, I don't buy this idea that somehow you've got to um, allow, uh, you've got to question the experts. Um, that is actually leading to a dangerous um, uh, uh, a deception which is allowing these interests to gain more and more power and ultimately to lead to these totalitarian regimes that we're seeing around the world. And so post-truth to me is extremely dangerous, morally, politically, environmentally, and so on. And we need to try and fight that all we can. I did want to briefly say, uh, some of this has been covered by uh, Jennifer and Simon, yeah, the issue isn't whether, I, I don't know about Frank, but I'm sure he's not the only person in this room who cares about democracy and democracy <laughs> being wide and deep and as participative as possible. Um, populism can work well, populism can work badly, so I'm not, I, I, you know, I, I don't have a great investment in the term, but I do think 
we should be attentive to the use of the people as mm. some sort of abstract, magical, metaphysical. I, I mean, I, I can't help thinking of the folk, you know, Hitler's mm. folk, the people. Um, and to have this discussion without looking at what people are denied, what people are not given access to, what mm. people are, how people are lied to, how a, a small number of people control the information that goes out, including how many billions will be available for the NHS if you have Brexit, mm. you know, um, and lots of people voted on that and felt treated subsequently. So I do think that we need to be careful about romanticizing the idea of the people. Everybody needs to be questioned. Experts need to be questioned too. But I don't think we can give up on an idea of knowledge uh, and, <laughs> and things that are not simply not true. So I do think we really need to be extremely careful about fetishizing and romanticizing. And it's also interesting to me, it's always sort of men in positions of power who say, me, I believe in the people. These people don't. I believe in you, and I need to be really, really mm. careful. The first politician, or one of the first, anyhow, who claimed to be himself the voice of the people was Robespierre. Mm. Um, mm. Another question. Um, the two gentlemen there, the, I think we'll pay deference to white hair first, and then... Um, <laughs> Compensation in age, it's nice. Um, I've known, uh, it seems to me that absolutes are inevitably culturally constructed to some extent and therefore relative. Similarly, on the other side, relativists I've known seem to be singularly absolute in their relativism. And therefore, I wonder sometimes whether what we believe is less important than how we believe it, the process more than the content. And I therefore would ask the panel, is it possible, do you think, to have absolute beliefs, but also tolerant of those with other absolutes? Can you have absolute beliefs? I, I, I can I parse that as certainty? Can you have certainty while you yet appreciate that there are people who are certain of the opposite? Um, mm. Anyone like to pick that one up? Mm. Well, I mean, if, if you read Locke's letter on tolerance, uh, although he makes an exception for Catholics because they're loyal to Rome and to atheists because they have no loyalty at all, he himself is very certain about his own beliefs mm. and he projects tolerance forward as a, as a liberal ideal precisely because he understands that Europe is divided between people who are certain about their Catholicism and people who are certain about their Protestantism and as long as there is no tolerance between them, then they will just kill each other. So tolerance emerges first as a pragmatic solution to the civil war within Europe, and it's only laterally that it acquires a, a slightly more uh, sort of nuanced uh, sort of complexion with the, the, with the contribution of Mill, Spinoza, you know, sort of the skeptics in France. Uh, and I, but I do think that you know, there is no contradiction between being certain about your beliefs and being tolerant, because tolerance is about tolerating ideas that you think are intolerable. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You think that they're, they're talking a foul crap, you know, you, you don't have any kind of commitment to that, but nevertheless, you prepare to tolerate their right to express those views. I mean, that's a very important fundamental value of a democratic society. It might also have something to do with how Christian you are or aren't, in the sense that the great pressure being put on the word belief, where we might think a little more about action, about what you do, how you behave towards other people is also kind of important. And uh, 
since Simon started telling stories, I'll tell a story. Um, this is the story of a meeting at the UN, or the new UN after the Second World War, in which uh, person after person stood up and said, how could we have done this to the Jews? How could we do that? They're just the same as us. It's amazing. They're people like us. We all share the values. How could we have done this to the Jews? And finally, of course, there was always, finally, there's the little rabbi who stood up at the end, and there's always a final rabbi in the story. He stood up and said, no, you still haven't got it. The Jews are different, but it shouldn't matter. Right? That's, the, that's when tolerance counts. It's not, I mean, so it's the behavioral. It's can you actually deal with people's differences in a way without trying to impose, to oppress, to serve? Yeah. Don't think so hard about belief. Think about whether you're actually dealing with the power relations in a decent way. You might get somewhere. Mm. Okay, thank mm. you. And the gentleman next mm. door, yes. Mm. I was forced to give way. Yeah. I like the idea that you have to have uh, both sides presented. But isn't it also the importance of the question? Well, if both sides are not presented, we can still ask the question. And the media sometimes uh, are in charge of this, so we let them be in charge of this, asking the very serious questions. Another point, should we not recognize that truth changes? Science has Part of the scientific method is that truth will be challenged and it will change. Mm -hmm. Faith systems tend not to be that way. Mm -hmm. <coughs> like to comment on that? I think, um, I mean, it is, to, to go back to my point about the IPCC and climate change, where we think of the, the, the truth of that um, based on the fact that whatever, what's the percentage? 98% of scientists say that climate change is anthropogenic and 2% don't or whatever. And so if one is trying to present the, the, the facts about that, you should have, every time there's an interview on the BBC, you should have you know, uh, nine scientists being interviewed saying um, this is happening and only one or half a scientist, <laughs> um, which half, <laughs> um, speaking <laughs> the opposite. Um, but then, uh, uh, but then, you know, to, to talk about the way in which truth changes over time. Conversely, at the time of Galileo, um, and I, I, uh, you know, my, my knowledge of Galileo is based on Brecht's play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have Galileo's truth mm. about the, you know, um, the Earth going around the Sun. And at the point that he's coming up with that idea, the consensus is on the other, the other um, uh, narrative of the sun going around the earth. So would the BBC at that time have nine people opposing Galileo and Galileo saying this truth? So yes, it is, it is a problem about how you, you know, if we're saying that truth emerges consensually, how do you have suddenly a different opinion and, and then gradually persuade people towards that opinion? And um, Yes, I don't necessarily have an answer to that other than um, a growing kind of listening and responsiveness and capacity to, of openness. But maybe the rest of the panel would. Yeah, I am a little bit worried because um, you, know, you're, you talk about science being open-ended. That's how I understand it. And you know, the Royal Society used to have this model on the word of, of no one, you know, uh, an orientation towards testing and experimentation. I think the unfortunate consequence of the climate change or the global warming debate has been that the way that the skeptics have been dealt with is by inventing a new word in the vocabulary of science, which is the science. 
So all of a sudden, the science, like the God, the God has spoken, the science has spoken. And I think that just they have to shut up all discussion. And I think that we need to be open to the idea that even if a half a scientist raises some question, in a, in a, in a democratic sphere, you've got to not just simply say, oh yeah, the science has spoken. We've got to be open to the idea of discussing and debating it because mm. otherwise we end up being dogmatic and we, we, we cease having the capacity to yield to new experience. So I, I do worry about the way that we all shut down our you know, echo chambers and, 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 and are unprepared to uh, listen to voices that may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. I can't let it go past just that you said that maybe we should leave the big questions to the media to pose. Um, I would be extremely unhappy to live in a world in which Paul Dacre set the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think one thing that hasn't been said about science or the science, which might be worth just remembering, is that um, to theorists of knowledge, epistemologists, mm. um, the glory of science and its rather um, unusual um, virtue is that it's um, self-correcting. That is, bad, uh, good science drives out bad science. It's one of the very few areas in which evolution has a, an arrow <laughs> of progress built into it. Um, whereas in something like literature or drama or whatnot, you might, or philosophy perhaps, you might just as easily go backwards as go forwards. Um, yes, over, over here. I, I actually just want to comment on the comment you made. Um, my question would be, nowadays in a lot of communities, a lot of different countries, funding for science is drying up. So a lot of funding now is from big business. And is there not the chance that perhaps who's funding your science also influences what your science says? So does that play into relativism? So, uh, the, sorry, just as a comment, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, there's a lot of statistics about the, mm. um, the different results you get if you look at research papers, and including peer-reviewed mm. research papers, which have been paid for by mm. big tobacco or big oil or whatever. And they come to very different conclusions from mm. research papers which are not so funded, that are more objectively funded. Yes. It, is a, it is a serious worry. You only have to read something like B Ben Geldacre on uh, mm. um, li life sciences, medicine, to find that a real worry. Mm. But in principle, <laughs> with honest researchers, then mm. should be should be self-correcting. A, a small point that takes us back to the previous discussion a little bit, but picks up on this one. I think that you know tolerance and engagement and judgment are all very good things, but I also think that you s tip over into the realm of the patronizing when mm -hmm. you say, you know, what, even if half a scientist says that there is no such thing as climate change, we should take it seriously and give it due respect. I mean, if we have no if we have no filter for right and wrong or actually <laughs> happening or not actually happening, we should just disband and walk out of this room now. You know, there's something really patronizing, except it, it pretends to be democratic and open and, and free, but actually it's really patronizing to say, I mean, it, the, the, the flip side of that would be telling a student who's clearly wrong, that's valid. You can have a first-class degree too. You know, I just mm. think that if we're not going to make any distinction between right and wrong, and anything mm. goes, you know, the flip side of this is people saying, "Is all genocide bad?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
And then some people say, well, there are certain circumstances in, in which, you know, massacring an entire population might be justified. You know, and so it just seems to me that tolerance is one thing mm -hmm. and engagement is one thing, but absolute nonsensical free-for-all is a completely different thing and it, it benefits only certain kinds of people and usually people in power. Mm. Well, uh, I, just had a I, point I, oh. I, I really disagree with that because mm. if you look at human, I mean, throughout human history, <laughs> throughout human history, uh, it's always been small numbers of people and minorities who raise some very difficult questions. And throughout history, we see an attempt to marginalize them, to shut them down, and say that they are, you know, we should not be taking them seriously. And I'm not arguing for a, a free-for-all. I'm not saying that you automatically, you know, sort of take their voices seriously. All I'm saying is that tolerance, to me, is, is tolerance. It's not selective. It's not something that you apply to some people, but not to other kinds of people. We should tolerate murderers and killers too. No, no, tolerance, <laughs> tolerance is about ideas. I mean, the, the idea of tolerance is, is not. But a it's not an idea. It's a denial of a fact. Well, in your, you know, and that's what that's yeah, what scientists yeah, do. They assess it does, facts. Yeah, they, well, they assess facts, and other scientists assess facts differently. Yeah, yeah. It's called interpretation. Well, interpretation is not given by God. We interpret in different kinds yeah, of God ways. God is not part of this discussion. Well, it, well, it, it may, might as well be uh, according <laughs> to your logic, because you know, the science becomes that's the science becomes like God. You know, if a, if a half a person or one person challenges that, then that's almost like you know room for excommunication. I, I do think mm, we need yeah. to take debate and discussion a little bit more seriously. I think there is. Uh, I think there's a problem if we take tolerance as an absolute value because, because it leads immediately to paradox about tolerance and intolerance and whatever. That's the thing, tolerance without judgment of any sort becomes dangerous. I would go back to good old Aristotle who had a word to say that he says, if you're not, if you're not capable of anger, you're not capable of facing injustice, of recognizing. Injustice should make you angry. You should be intolerant of injustice. Yeah, that's not a, and that is an idea. Injustice is also is an idea in practice. And so you should be intolerant of injustice. But the, how you enact that doesn't mean you have to, you know, it means you go around shooting everybody who disagrees. I mean, there are ways of enacting But that's why I don't think tolerance is an absolute value. I think it's a very important value. And linked to judgment is one I will fight for. And I would have said so. But if you take it as an absolute value, you end up saying, I don't care about things that you should care about yeah. if you're not. But, but, but why does that follow? If, if you believe in tolerance, Mm. You believe in judgment. That's the whole point. You judge something to be wrong, and you still tolerate it. The whole point about the beauty of tolerance, mm. and, and that's why it's an absolute value, is it tells us that we need to be open to judgment. Mm. I mean, that's the, you know, that, that was the key, you know, sort of creative dimension to it. And if we use tolerance selectively, then what we're saying is we tolerate some things, but not other things. And that, that really does lead to, you know, the kind of Trumpian idea of, you know, of double standards. Quite a forest of hands. I think I'll go right to the back. Um, back center, yes, there's a gentleman. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to say that in South Africa, we it depends really who's doing the tolerating. So we allowed our president to deny the science on uh, HIV AIDS and accidentally allowed 200,000 people to die. So the science does matter and judgment at the right point does matter. I also wanted to say that it, there's, a, there's a slight paradox about um, there seems to be on the one hand we're agonizing about being in the post-truth post age, on the other hand we seem to be surprised that the appeal of, of authenticity seems to be really powerful. And that seems to me slightly paradoxical. It almost suggests that what matters is that, it, it almost suggests that 
it isn't the value of truth that has lost its, that isn't, it isn't that truth has lost its currency, but that maybe the uh, people have generally lost faith in the political, intellectual, and financial elite. I mean, we are speaking 10 years after the financial crisis, which I'm sure 10 years ago, if you asked someone whether financial economics in 2007 was a peer-reviewed and there was a sort of absolute consensus about what we should do uh, in maintaining stability in the financial system, I'm pretty sure we get a, like a, a widespread agreement. So I think we should, we should also read this as a disillusionment in the uh, essentially centrist political establishment. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we've only got five minutes left, so could I ask people to be very, very brief with their questions? I think there's a gentleman over there on the left. There's one person right in front here as well, and hand up the blonde woman. Um, just going back to what Priya was saying about, you know, sometimes people are denying objective fact. Um, when Copernicus developed his, um, you know, uh, heliocentric model of the universe or the solar system, people denied this, saying that there's no way the Earth could be moving. When you drop a stone from a tall tower, if the Earth was moving, it wouldn't drop at the bottom. To them, that looked exactly like he's denying objective fact. You drop the stone, it lands right next to the tower. If the Earth was moving, it would land 100 feet away from the tower. Copernicus had seen something that their model of objective fact might not have been correct. Do you not think that we might get some things wrong in that kind of nature now? Are you asking me? Yeah. Yes. An error is a part of all inquiry. But Do you it, it not then think all views should be you know, allowed open to judgment? I think all views should be subject to scrutiny and what, didn't, what Copernicus didn't get, which is rigorous peer analysis and rigorous subjection to, to knowledge. So I think that's a completely false comparison. You're actually talking about a situation of belief where one set of beliefs contradicted another set of beliefs. But when you have intellectual inquiry, I mean, we can give up the project of science and intellectual inquiry, but if you're gonna have intellectual inquiry, you have to believe that there are better and worse knowledges. It just seems to me incredibly patronizing to say, anything goes, if, you, if somebody believes something and I believe the opposite, it's all fine, it's just as valid. That's really, I mean, you don't want two doctors standing on your, uh, when you're sitting in a, in, a, in a hospital having completely different views on what might save you, and one is, co one is completely, time, right? yes. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> if somebody says, no, no, I'm going, to use, I'm going to use song and dance around this person, even though they, they might need penicillin, but I'm going to use, sing a song and pray to God, I mean, that's fine, you can do that, but uh, at that point, to me anyway, Training and knowledge would matter. I mean, if you, want, if you want to have song and dance and music as a, as a possible way of, of treating your severe condition, that's okay. I want my doctor to have actually some knowledge of what she is doing. Could you just get the... Thanks. If I've understood you correctly, it sounds like you're elevating complex truth over simple truth. And I just wonder if there are circumstances in which there are some truths which maybe children might be more cognizant of than adults actually be the most profound in terms of what we do mm. and how we live. I forget who it was who said that truth is rarely pure and never simple. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a while, was yes. it? Yes. And that will have um, been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think what I, when I 
when I said the truths that are trivial and trivially true, um, that's really, a, I mean, so partly it's a philosophical expression that people use all the time to describe things. I suppose I, don't, I didn't think they were worth discussing in the same way. They may be thoroughly profound. But it is where, when we bring them into context with relativism, it's not an interesting debate to say, you know, to say that, uh, you know, I, I don't know what a, a simple truth would look like, but uh, that I'm aware of myself. Happy. Okay, I'll take that in a sort of vague Descartian manner and say I'm, I'm happy to do that and say it's simple. And there you go. But I just don't think it's worth discussing. Yeah, it's actually not a very good example. Uh, but <laughs> that's far too complicated. But as a way, I, th I think, for me, it's... When does truth become an issue is what we're talking about and what does relativism do to that? And so the simplest of simple truths, maybe it doesn't become an issue in the same way, however profound. So that's, I, that's what I, uh, I think I was trying to say. Don't, don't, is that? Okay, one final question. Who gets it? Um, gentleman just behind. Unique in this room, but I am a scientist. <laughs> um, I find it quite touching that you have such faith in science providing absolute facts. Um, <laughs> Rest assured, we, we don't. Okay. <laughs> it, um, it's all down to balance of probabilities in some respects. Um, I don't know any more about climate change than clearly any of you on the panel, because I don't specialise in climate change. But I am willing to accept that 98% of scientists say this, and by all balance of probabilities, this is how I go at the moment. Science is constantly changing, mm. and we question each other all the time. Mm. Um, I even have PhD students that are questioning me and <laughs> coming up with new theories that debunk mine. Mm. So this idea of this being a constant truth is, is just not true, even for science, it just doesn't mm. happen. Did anyone say that, that no. it was an unchanging truth? Oh, yeah, well, you kept talking about facts. No, uh, and like science providing inquiry, facts for you. Inquiry um, is crucial, but fact doesn't mean unchanging. So it is precisely the balance of probabilities. It is precisely better and worse possibilities. No one actually said is truth is an absolute. That's a, that's a red herring in this room, a complete red herring. And I came here for solutions, really, because uh, I know nothing about this area. I, I spent one hour thinking about mm. it. Mm. But uh, as a scientist, we, we do come across people who refuse to accept evolution, for instance, what do we do about them? Do we admit them to the university to, to study here? I don't know. <laughs> I've had students in my supervisions here at the University of Cambridge who think it's okay to kill Salman Rushdie. Uh, I don't. And you set it up as a question. Who is responsible? on that. Mm. Salman Rushdie shouldn't be killed. That's a, what, is, um, what is the doubt here? Well, yeah. This, yeah. this one could run and run, um, but I'm afraid we've, <laughs> I'm afraid we've, uh, we've run out of time. I'll just um, end with a last very quick anecdote. It's told by Bernard Williams about um, the treaty of, when the Treaty of Versailles was being discussed at the end of the First World War. Um, somebody said, I wonder what future historians will say about this. And I think it was um, the president of France who replied, one thing they won't say is that Belgium invaded Germany. <laughs> um, so, so, 